0: This is scibite episode 96. For June 3rd, 2013. Hi everyone, and welcome to sci by Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast live on a Monday, fresh on Wednesdays over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our always excellent Heather Host. Host Heather, something like that. Hey there, Heather.
1: Hey there, Chris. <laughs> I was going to
0: say Heather the host, but then I realized I don't ever call you that. I don't yeah. ever call you that. So what are we going to talk about today, Heather?
1: Today on Happy Science, we're going to take a look at woolly mammoth blood university rover challenge conductive paint crowdsourcing a telescope frozen moss viewer feedback spacecraft updates curiosity news and as always take a peek back in history and up in the sky this week
0: wait a minute happy science to you heather happy science and that's too much show for a monday that is way too much show we better kick things off to get it right let's do the news All right. I don't know if we can do it. I don't know. It seems like too much show, but where do we begin?
1: All right. Woolly mammoth blood. Yeah, I said it. Like, for reals. Gross. Yeah. It. Okay, so <laughs> this might be a little gross for people, but it is too amazing. Only
0: in Russia. Only in Russia. Yes.
1: So Russian scientists earlier this month actually uncovered a really, incredibly well-preserved carcass of a female woolly mammoth on some really remote island. Now... You know, they think, okay, the creature died like ten to 15,000 years ago, was probably around 60 years old, a female, makes it the oldest female they've ever discovered. Hmm. But what was incredibly crazy is that they're claiming that the body, how well it was preserved. Like the lower part of it, it ended up in a pool of water that was just like frozen. And so the upper part of the body, kind of been in the tundra, it's got beat up. But the lower part was so well preserved that they were sitting there and they, were picking at it, and they broke the ice beneath the stomach, and blood th- poured out.
0: Flowing blood, huh?
1: Yes, it actually flowed out. The muscle tissue was said to be like the red color of, you know, fresh meat.
0: And it's actually still the shape. I mean, like, when when in this picture here they have of it, it you can kind of see the, the outline of it, at least.
1: Yes. Now, yeah, they'll still keep their shape quite a bit, but it was so crazy and interesting because the temperature at the time was 7 to, 10, 7 to 10 degrees below 0 Celsius that's only 19 to 14 degrees Fahrenheit so below freezing so obviously since it's you know flowing liquid hmm. they're assuming that the blood of Willie Maz probably had some cryoprotective properties which would make actually a lot of sense that their blood would be completely happy in frozen temperatures.
0: So they have like a super blood. They have like they have like Mr. Freeze
1: blood. Yeah, kind of. Okay, okay. We'll go with that. And so if it all is true, like this is one of those times where it, something is so awesome, I keep my uh, skeptical pants like on standby.
0: You think it could be a prank?
1: I doubt it because there are lots of pictures. You know, there's a, a tube of vial that you can see one of the scientists holding up. And you know, there's a little bit of blood in the bottom, but it's yeah. just—it's just one of those times where something is so crazily amazing that they actually found like, like blood. Well, it seemed like if it,
0: if it's potentially that defrosted, then isn't it possible there could be bacteria living in there that's kind of screwed stuff up?
1: It's certainly possible, but in those kind of cold conditions, mm. um, in kind of that you know sealed mm-hmm. location, mm-hmm. less likely other than any cold or whatever this poor elderly female woolly mammoth had back in the day.
0: It really is something to think uh, how we there's just even today, there's still these these snapshots of time that are buried around our world that we even now it just we're still discovering them. And who knows what else we're going to come across. And I'd it, be really yeah. curious to find out if they if they get an analysis from this blood. Now, the question is, because this is in my opinion, because this is coming out of Russia. This might be the last we ever hear of it. You know what I mean? Like, they might just decide, okay, we got the attention. Now, we're just going to keep everything to ourselves.
1: They say they're bringing in specialists from South Korea, from Russia, from the U.S. Oh, good. And so, they're saying that all of these people are going to come together and study it. Of course, right now, it is in a completely undisclosed location somewhere in northern Russia. They kind of spread their hands over the map and go like, we're somewhere here. Mm. Because you really don't want people hunting this down. I mean, they've already... Scientists have already deciphered a lot of the genetic code of the woolly mammoth from like balls of mammoth hair found frozen in the Siberian permafrost. Yeah, but this actually gives a really good chance of finding some live cells, which could help if they want to try cloning mm. a mammoth. Mm. So they cloning research has signed yeah research signed a deal last year with the um, cloning pioneer from South Korea who actually back in oh five, created, you know, the world's first cloned dog. <laughs> so, Bill really, Gates was like, "Hmm, can we clone a woolly mammoth?" I mean, they've gone through and scientists have said, "Okay, what is the largest elephant we have today that could possibly, you know, carry a woolly mammoth baby to term?" And there's there's even like um, they're talking like a uh, concept of an X prize, like you know the one they had that, you know, X prize. Get the, for the you know you deliver stuff to the station, you know SpaceX and Virgin Galactic, you know those people were doing that. They're talking about maybe a Jurassic Park prize. You're
0: Put kidding. my fingers you're,
1: quotes in air.
0: You're kidding. Where, you're,
1: you're joking. It, no, no, no. There is actually there's this like talk about this kind of X Prize type of thing where if you actually succeed in <laughs> bringing back an extinct animal.
0: That's too funny. Seems like we've learned. Shouldn't we've learned our lesson from Hollywood on this one, Heather?
1: Yeah, well,
0: it's too—it's too tempting to study, isn't it? I mean, it really is. Yeah. Wow, they really are calling it a Jurassic Park prize.
1: Yes, that's not they a really joke. Do. Wow, no, it's not a joke. It's—I well—it's one of those times where it's the name is so symbolic. It's just like a stamp, and everyone would know exactly. It's like, oh, that would be the kind of thing that it would be.
0: I, you know would like to actually go to a Jurassic Park. I'm not going to lie. I would, if they I actually... I would
1: not. Really? I mean,
0: you know, I mean, I'm not going to hang out there, especially if it starts to rain and it hasn't actually officially opened yet.
1: Yeah, and the power might go out.
0: Right. I'm not going to hang out then. But if, uh, you know, it's been open for a few months, I might check it out. I might. Wow, that's a great one. Any other thoughts on that one?
1: No, it's just... Really strange, and I really look forward to see uh, when we next hear anything about this.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, well, keep us informed. All right, Heather, I wanted to take just a moment here. Now, last week you had an awesome Star Wars book pick. This week, I—it's not a Star Wars book, and I'm going to warn you guys up front. This one is very techno babble heavy, so that's why I got it. Okay. If you're not a huge fan of the techno babble, just like blah, 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 start, you know, basically here, I'll give you an example. They go into great lengths in this book that I'm about to pick on how the starships communicate between each other when they're at light speed and about to go into combat. I find that to be fascinating. Uh, mm. And that's why I got it here. I'll play a little sample for you just so you get a little sense. cic usna cvs america Outbound, Ada Boota System, 2025 Hours TFT. The Spirit of Confederation reports she is taking very heavy fire, Admiral, Hughes told him. Damage to aft shields, damage to primary broadside weapons, damage to two of the three HAB modules, fire control is down. Koenig was watching the Confederation's struggle on a secondary tactical display, which was relaying the camera view from a battle drone pacing the retreating ships. Straight-edged patches of blackness kept popping on and off along the battleship's length. So that's the audiobook version, and uh, if you are an Amazon uh, member, then it is a credit. And if you are not an Amazon member and you use the link in the show notes, you will get the book for free, and even if you cancel your membership, you get to keep it. It'll also, uh, we'll have a link to the uh, Amazon book, which is like, it's like eight bucks or seven bucks, seven nineteen for the paper version on Amazon and $6 for the Kindle version, You got you kind of probably you got a good sense of how kind of techno babbly it is just in that clip that I played there. But I kind of love that. And they introduce a lot of really interesting, like practical concepts that you don't quite get if you follow the Star Wars and Star Trek universes very heavily. So it's it's new ideas, very fun. I've enjoyed it quite a bit, and it also supports syncing with the book version. Since the book version is only six bucks, if you get it on the Kindle, it's kind of cool that you can sync that with the audiobook version. So that's my recommendation. It's called Earth Strike Star Carrier Book One. It's a five-book series, and uh, I have a link to it in the show notes. And if you grab the audio version, it's twelve hours and twenty-one minutes, and they have it in that enhanced audio that's CD quality. And it's got uh, it's got outrageously good ratings, both on Audible. and and it's got a a great rating on uh, Amazon as well. So that is my pick this wow. week. Earth Strike Star Carrier, book number 1. And I'm I'm planning I'm hoping, I'm planning to go through all five books. And so far I wow. so far I guess what I've been told is it really sets up all the technical world and how all the other laws in the universe work in the first few books and then you really dive into like character stuff in the in the following books. So I'm <laughs> looking forward to it. All right, Heather. With that filed, let's move on to the news bites, which is Not coming. No, that's the wrong one. No. Well. I'm going to Well, it's Monday. Oh. Yeah. So, I I have some other I, It's Dylan. Sorry, Dylan. Okay, Dylan, do this one. There we go.
1: Oh. News bite.
0: a boy. That's my boy. That's my boy. I'm yeah. teaching him. All right, Heather. What's in the news bite?
1: All righty. The University Rover Challenge. This is a competition hosted by the Mars Society. We talked about them a couple of weeks ago doing their little simulation up in the frozen Arctic. And what this is, it's a competition located in the, uh, their uh, desert research station in Utah. And so it's really rocky, rocky barren landscape. Kind of looks mars It Mars-ish. does, actually, yeah. <laughs> It does. If you, like, tinted the sky pink...
0: Yeah, you could put it through a filter, and you could actually totally be- believe it was a Mars location. This is great, except for yeah, the guys who so, are just standing there breathing.
1: <laughs> well, you know, and you know the cars and trucks in the background, yeah, but what yeah. it is is these all these universities—they're allowed to spend up to fifteen thousand dollars to make a rover, which can weigh no more than fifty kilograms or one hundred and ten pounds. Hmm. And so, what they have to do is it's got to be what they call a telerobot, which means um, you don't you don't pre-program it. They have to be able to drive it without seeing what's going on. So they're like inside the, uh, you know, the habitat or behind a wall or in a truck somewhere where they can only see what the the camera is showing back to them. Okay. So then they have a list of tasks that change every year. This year they had to be able to uh, cross a very specific, um, you know, terrain. They had to follow a specific track, go through a number of of uh, be able to locate different, you know, quote-unquote astronauts, which are some of, like, the staff people. They'd stand at various locations, and they would have to go take their rover and find them, sort of deliver a package, as it were, like it was emergency supplies.
0: Okay, cool.
1: Be able to fix a dust-colored solar panel without using water, uh, navigate an obstacle course, getting over boulders, passing in between PVC pipe gates. It's all these things kind of meant to sort of test all these different can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do that? All things that would need to be used on Mars, really. Yeah, right. So the idea is, you know, like, okay, so what if the astronauts were in the habitat on Mars and they're just driving their little Remotely. rover around? Remotely.
0: Yeah. Remotely. Yeah. So this is
1: the kind of thing that they're doing. And this year they had universities from Canada, from India, from Poland, from the US. And two of them, two of those teams had come back and had won a couple of times. And this year, uh, the top two teams are actually from Poland. Uh, first place, you know, practically perfect score came uh, from uh, Bialystok University of Technology and the one, Roklau. Okay, I'm really sorry, anybody who speaks Polish or is from Poland, because you know, I you terribly butch- you, butcher. You,
0: you butcher with love in the name of science.
1: I do total love. There's some uh, clips in the show notes about these things. It's, it's kind of cool. You go through and, you know, watch them and, some of the teams, you know, from Poland and, you know, overseas had to, like, really spend a lot of time making sure they had raised the amount of money they needed to mm-hmm. be able to bring it here, to bring the team here. Mm-hmm, uh, some of the teams were, you know, weren't able to test until they were in the field because, you know, a manufacturer said, yes, we can get you there. And then it came time to be delivery. And they're like, oh, yeah, we mentioned four weeks. So it's like they get the... Last of the materials for the rover like a week before they have to travel out there.
0: Oh, so they don't get a and, chance to try it all out.
1: Yeah, but it it really mimics like real life. You know, something might happen in such a way. I suppose so. But, challenges happen, right? You know, challenges happen. You have to work under a budget. You have to work where goodness only knows what's going to happen out there. Will it tip over? Different things. So obviously universities get a chance to kind of come out and then they they get to strut their stuff and where they're awesome Rover badge for a year. It's just really interesting that they can do this sort of thing and to see all the different kinds of designs that that everybody that are come up with.
0: Very good, very good, Heather. All right. Well, uh, everybody can go check out the links to that in the show notes, including a few YouTube videos of the rovers in action that people got and uploaded to YouTube, which is pretty cool. Pretty Cool to see that. Gosh, we live in the future now. People are just building robots. All right, Heather. (laughs) Why don't we move on? To the two byte news. Nope, the two byte news. Gosh, come on. Oh, on
1: Monday,
0: I pay him in lollipops. You can only expect so much.
1: Oh, don't blame him. It's the band. They're they're caught they're caught a day off.
0: They're gonna show up on Tuesday either way, I have to pay them. No, I'm, oh I'm paying no! The, yeah. Oh, I. Oh, yeah. No, it's part of the contract. It's
1: horrible. okay. That's why. They, that's why they're kind of sleeping it off today.
0: All right. So we can talk about the two bite news.
1: All right. Some conductive paint. This substance actually allows you to sort of paint liquid wiring on any surface except for skin.
0: I love so, this.
1: Yeah. Like Radio Shack stocks this. Uh, these paint pens, where you know the people, you know the inventors say yes, it's totally non toxic, electrically conductive, dries at room temperature. So this specific type, they're saying, hey, it can it can be great used by hobbyists, by artists, you know, by engineers. In addition, because it's non toxic, you could actually use it for educational projects, toys, touch sensitive paper, wow. all these kind of things.
0: Wow, that is so cool! Yeah, she has an example here in in a video that Heather has linked in the show notes where they actually have like the battery taped to a piece of paper, and then they ha- they're using the paint to lead from the battery to a circuit.
1: Yeah. Pretty amazing. And like, like painted a giant controller on a piece of paper, you know, had the wiring and then...
0: And then played Pac-Man.
1: And then played Pac-Man with it. All right.
0: That's pretty neat. (laughs) Okay. I'm impressed by this.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's sort of... It could be signaling. It can be powering. You could use it as, you know, potentiometer, interfering microcontrollers, or you know, you could power a device like an LED or some small speakers or something. So it's one of those things where you touch and you could actually start, you know, a card or something making sound. So it's, it's pretty, I looked at it and it was really cool. I know that this kind of stuff has happened before, but it was just that it kind of piqued my interest this time around. And the fact that these people are very adamant that it's you know non-toxic and dries at room temperature. And so it's like, I could use that.
0: Even more accessible than ever.
1: Yeah, that's awesome.
0: All right. Well, while we're on the keeping things accessible track, why don't we talk a little bit about crowdsourced telescopes? Now that makes sound. That makes a telescope sound accessible to me.
1: Yes. So what this is is a uh, planetary resources. It's a private venture. It's like aiming to mine near Earth space rocks, and it announced on the 29th of May that it is actually going to build and launch a space telescope. For quote public use, and they're raising the money for it on Kickstarter.
0: Oh, look at this! Another Kickstarter project, huh?
1: Yeah, they had more. They're aiming for a million dollars. They hit two hundred thousand on the first day. Wow! As of uh, this morning, uh, filming it uh, June the third, they had reached seven hundred fourteen thousand dollars. So they're getting pretty closer. It they it's going to be um two telescopes. It's going to be like a twin to their spacecraft that they're developing to actually track and study asteroids in you know preparation for a mining mission. Mm, okay, so this is sort of they'll have a trial version, then they'll have you know this version, and then they'll have you know they're completely dedicated to them. So it just like in you know Kickstarter things you the the set that you donate to, you get different things. So That's, it's you.
0: C- I love that they have a space selfie. Take a selfie in space. That's one. Of the-
1: yes. It's <laughs> what it is. Is they have, you know, it's, I mean, it's not that big. It is only like 200 millimeters, seven and a little over seven and a half inches long. So this thing is tiny. You know, if, you know, the Hubble space telescope went up in the shuttle and like in the space that it took in the bay, a thousand of these could fit in it. So really tiny, what they do is they have like a little screen on the side of the telescope and they have a little camera that pops out. Mm. So it's pointing at at the telescope and so you could see the telescope and you know the Earth behind it and if you pay a certain amount of money you can have your picture displayed on the screen and it'll take a picture of the picture that you have displayed in space.
0: That's pretty fancy.
1: Yeah, it was... It was hilarious. I mean, okay, so these guys are real nerds. So it is called the Arcid Telescope. Yes, and Star Wars fans, if you're like Super Star Wars fans, it might sound slightly familiar. It ringing a bell because they were looking for like a code name for it when they were just starting, and somebody was a real Star Wars person. And Ericid Industries was the person in was the industry in Star Wars that manufactured droids and heavy weapons. Is the people that did the Viper Probe droids. So you know when uh
0: oh my god you know on
1: Hoth that you know circle floating probe that is trying to find Echo Base.
0: <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah,
1: yeah. That the industry who made that is what it's named after, because they'd started off doing um, in the Star Wars universe doing probe droids to search for planets and asteroids for resources. So that they kind of
0: is nitty gritty. I got to be honest. Yeah, they
1: they grabbed it from there. Like I said, these are these are super nerds, but. Damn. Yep. I mean, it's going to go. They'll have, you know, be able to take, you know, 150 of those quote selfies and 15 astronomical observations per day. So if you donate a certain like, you know, more money, you can actually say, I want to donate this time to a school or, hey, I want to take a picture of this and go and find it and take a picture of that. And it's mine.
0: And they've got the celebrity star power of Brent Spiner to back him up
1: yep and Bill Nye science guy yep. and a number of people are all kind of rooting for this little guy and bill, bill. <laughs> I they had a um you know a random fax sheet oh, yeah. it was like you know eight times faster than the black you know sr71 blackbird flying at Mach three you know Ooh. San Francisco to Boston in ten minutes but it was hilarious because they'll say, you know, they're downloading things at DSL speeds. So they only get a couple of minutes per orbit to actually download things. Oh, okay. And the first ground station will be in Seattle, Washington.
0: Oh, can I visit?
1: So, <laughs> if it ever gets up, hmm. of course, that's like the caveat for the whole thing. It's like, well, they're star.
0: at, at $700,000 right now.
1: Well, yeah, but there's a lot of things between now and in space.
0: Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Getting funding is only one part of that puzzle.
1: Yeah. Getting funding is one part. So it's all like starts like. This is considering we actually get there if we don't sorry thanks, love your hearts,
0: yeah, a million dollars actually seems a little low, <laughs> I mean for building something that's going to go into space,
1: yeah, well they'll they're not going to launch their own rocket, they're going to piggyback off okay,
0: okay, rockets, which yeah, makes a lot sense of these smaller there.
1: ventures can do, so you yeah. you piggyback off that, and then it's small, so it's not like you're grinding a giant mirror or anything,
0: and they're actually based in Seattle too, which is yes. really cool, so yeah. I should go down there and, and do a science interview with them. Uh-huh. Hello, hello.
1: We'd like to talk to you.
0: Hello. hello.
1: The most hilarious thing of the whole thing that I read, even funnier than the how they name it selfies, which is actually what they name it, mm-hmm. was that they're like it runs off fifty watts, the same as a standard household light or a hundred and eleven hamster wheels. They actually say that on the sheet. On, well, like, their, they their are website.
0: geeks, aren't they?
1: It was hilarious. Let me. So I really want to. I kind of really want this to like. Work and go because this is all like the private, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Private funded, sourced things.
0: Yeah. It's still, and you know, for those and think about it on a larger scale, for those of us who wish that the space programs in in the United States would get more funding, Mm -hmm. it's sort of us voting with our dollar in a sense. I mean, it's very small scale, very beginnings of that, but it could lead to something that sort of says, "All right, well, if the government won't fund it, the people will." Yeah.
1: So. It's kind of cool. I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes. And the selfies are hilarious. I'm like, okay, what all crazy things are going to be taking pictures of? The
0: internet is making the entire world into a bunch of narcissists. (laughs) But you know what? I wouldn't mind doing that if I But, you know, I'm too busy focused on my moss. I have a big moss uh, problem in my house, and I was thinking one way to finally get rid of that moss once and for all would be to freeze it. Then I'd never have to worry about it again, right?
1: Well, maybe dot, 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 question mark, not really.
0: Oh, dang it.
1: So they've actually recently found that even after hundreds of years buried under ice, mosses can actually start to grow again. they would. They went to Canada's Ellsworth Island uh, on the Tildrip, Teardrop Glacier. Mm. And so, you know, it's been retreating since the last, like, little ice age. Um, but they found some exposed ground where some clumps of moss looked dead, you know. But among these brown tangles of dead moss were slightly, were a couple of green little sprigs. And they took that back to the lab. They used radiocarbon dating, said, all right, this moss was about 400 years ago. And based upon, you know, the movement of the glacier, it's probably been uncovered for less than two years. And so that all they had to do was grind some of the plant, you know, the dead up, give it a little nutrients, water, light, let it just be. And seven out of the 24 samples they took started growing moss again. No kidding. It started actually growing again. Now, budding plants like moss—they don't actually come from seeds or spores or anything. Oh. So any any cell can be reset, which is why just like grinding it up and letting it go would was able to do it. Now, how long they actually stay viable or what they can do—eh, anyone's guess. But it's it kind of suggests that mosses might actually help. This kind of thing might actually help repopulate an ecosystem, get it restarted.
0: Oh, right. Uh, yes.
1: Once these kind of, you know, natural glacier movements go back and forth. Sure. Oh. So oh, yeah. the fact that it came back to life was nuts. We're like bringing back ancient life all over the place this week.
0: Yeah, no kidding. And scientifically speaking, I think a yard full of moss is easier to maintain than a yard full of grass. Just putting that observation out there. Heather, I have a notification on the Sci-By 2000. It's either the self-destruct or. Oh, good. It's a little incoming communications.
1: Just go ahead and push that button willy-nilly. Hey, you know, I figure 50-50. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, what is so, our incoming
0: communications?
1: This week is actually from my hubby. Oh, it was direct a direct
0: line.
1: Direct line about an exoplanet that has been directly observed. There has been a newly discovered gaseous, a giant gas planet that was actually directly photographed, only about 300 light years away from Earth. Now, generally, you say, okay, exoplanet, like Kepler, you know, where you see, the Kepler Space Telescope, where you were seeing dips in light in front of the star, which you were kind of inferring from a planet there. But there are only a couple of planets, and this is one of them now, that they observe it, block out the starlight and look in the infrared and actually see the planet itself completely as a separate object.
0: Awesome.
1: Now they just released it and it you know, this circle circling a really young star. Now is based on the brightness of the planet itself, they estimate it's only about four or five times more massive than Jupiter, which would make it pretty much the smallest planet that we have directly observed.
0: So that is ridiculous because Jupiter, as far as I knew, I mean my scale of planets, Jupiter's a big boy.
1: Yeah, well, on the scale of exoplanets, okay, I mean, there are quite a number of ones that are right. ginormous. Right. But the fact that we're directly observing it, saying, okay, we have now spotted something for Jupiter's big 300 light years away. Wow. Not by seeing it pass in front of a star, but by actually looking at it in the infrared. Now, what's really cool is even more interesting is that the star is actually pretty young, only 10 to 17 million years old, which is really young in star years. But, so it makes this exoplanet formation, like it's fairly, like, much earlier on than, like, our our solar system most definitely. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of at a, but it kind of lets the researchers get this potentially intriguing kind of snapshot view of this part of the solar system formation.
0: And again, a little another, unless I'm mistaken, another great example of finding this interesting bit of data in a whole mountain of data, right? Like, I mean, they already had these pictures, and they went back. I think so. Yeah, I'm. I I was looking at the article. They don't make it quite clear, but I think these were existing pictures that then they went and knew, oh, we should look here, and they found it. Which is, I always fascinating to me that we've done so much science that we just now have databases full of science that requires science sifting. That's just how. Yes. (laughs) Gotta get your science sifter out. Alright, yes. well good news. Side by two thousand tells me we have a spacecraft update. A little lunar gravity map.
1: Yes. Uh quite a while back we had the Grail Space Telescope, Ebb and Flow. That was the two little satellites that we had orbiting the moon. And they were synced up in a very, very precise fashion, so that as they were orbiting, tiny, tiny amounts of getting closer or farther away was telling scientists about how the gravity of the moon was affecting it because the gravity of the moon is not flat it's not solid it has a lot of dips and curves and if you see the maps in the uh, in the video or in the show notes you can actually see it's like red and blue speckles and that's not height it's the strength of the gravity itself so they're able to make these really really precise measurements of the measurements of the different gravity how where the gravity was stronger and weaker. So we've kind of seen, and we've seen that kind of a thing, what they call uh, masons gravitational anomalies. We saw that all the way back in the 60s as, you know, NASA officials and others were planning the Apollo moon missions. Mm-hmm. You know, they put things out and they're like, oh, it's not just a simple straightforward orbit. There's little things going on here or there uh, that yeah. higher points of gravity, lower points of gravity. So they've been able to see, and they're like, okay, we can see giant craters in the moon. and You see those giant, um, you know, sp- flat plains where it's, you know, lava kind of filled it in and we expect, you know, that's what happened. So they went and they looked at some big impact sites on the near side of the moon that faces us and then the far side of the moon, kind of really looking at these. Now, on the near side of the moon, they saw these partially filled in with, you know, ancient flows of really dense lava, which is like, okay, that, that accounts for the math, this, this, you know, positive gravitational anomaly. There's a whole bunch of mass there. There would obviously be a little bit more gravity there. Yeah. But in other locations where they were looking, the lava flow that would have filled it in would be too thin to exactly explain why there would be ha- higher gravity there.
0: Oh, really? So what's that mean?
1: So it means that they were, they were trying to figure out what was going on here. So now what they've gone through and looked at is, hey, something unexpected was here. What actually occurred? What they're thinking is now that, so giant asteroid impacts, makes a really large crater on the moon. Now, now what happens is it doesn't like totally lavafy. all the surrounding material kind of slumps in, collapses inward. Think you're baking um, some bread or, you know, something that cooks on the outside. Mm-hmm. It's kind of still mush on the inside.
0: Chicken pot pie.
1: Not quite chicken pot pie, but we'll go with that. Um, something with a thinner crust, oh, so you okay. drop drop um you know a rock in there, oh sad now it's now it's bad, but yeah, so not necessarily is it going to completely you know go liquid around that area, but what might happen is that all the surrounding sort of slumps inward towards that hole, so you have this different different type of thing that's going on, so it's the stuff it was the ground around it that sort of slumped down, filled in that area. And the reason why you would have these sort of peaks in the middle would be because everything slumped down and hit the middle and kind of jammed up again. If that, if that makes sense. Because I'm waving my arms in the air in a way that would make sense. <laughs> I really promise.
0: I, I find the gravity map to be pretty interesting. That we've, They've really got just essentially every nook and cranny of that thing f- mapped now.
1: Yeah, so, it's, so now they're really able to go through and say, all right, take the visual images that we have and take these gravity maps and really go through little section by section to kind of figure out exactly what happened in the formation of the moon. Kind, they're really getting to try to figure out what happened below the surface. You now, what's happening deep in there? How is it formed? You know, what happened in its history? So these kind of combination really gets us a, a better chance to make these sort of new... Observations and try to make new, um, so that we can really look at this stuff,
0: and uh, make future plans for hopefully yes. revisiting. I hope our early sending robots.
1: Well, something.
0: Well, while we're up and above the atmosphere, what do you say we head over to Mars and do a Curiosity update? You ready? Let's go. And lift off of the Atlas V with Curiosity
1: confirmed.
0: We're yeah. safe That yeah. is a, a wheel. What? Are you... That is a wheel. Are you, yeah, I was going along with the clip, too. All right, <laughs> so uh,
1: what was Curiosity up to? All righty. They have their Curiosity Radiation Assessment Detector. It talked about how they were going to make a big uh, announcement about their radiation findings last week, and they have made it. So they were able to say they were taking the radiation readings all the way to Mars on, you know, on cruise control. So they were able to kind of see, you know, what kind of radiation exposure would human explorers would see between here and Mars. Now, as of right now, it looks like that amount would actually exceed NASA's current career limit for astronauts. So they have like specific radiation, you know, ways to measure radiation. And once you hit that limit, then you're out, you're retired. So looks like as of right now, it's kind of exceeding that amount. Uh-oh. But we'll, we'll kind of see what happens. It may just give them a better idea of what kind of shielding they need. Now, there's I mean, two forms of radiation it's going to affect. There's galactic cosmic rays, which are things like from supernova explosions, other really high-energy events from outside the solar system. Since they're so high-energy, really hard to shield from them. Only so much we can do as of with the technology we have right now. The other kind of radiation that we can do stuff about is solar energetic particles. Those are from, like, solar flares or coronal mass ejections, all these kind of things from the sun. So we're able to see that radiation detected, like, accumulated, like, on the trip to Mars would be about the same as if you had, like, a whole-body CT scan Every five or six days. Mm. So it's a little bit higher than we'd want right now. On one of the charts, you can see it's very steady, a couple of really big spikes where, you know, a coronal mass ejection or something hit the spacecraft itself. Which is, it was going, as it was going, you could actually, they're actually happy to kind of see that happen because we can say, okay, what does this kind of event mean as far as the detector? So we say, okay, well, in general, the shielding needs to be able to protect against this much energy. Now, maybe you have a safe room that has a lot more protective power. It's just much smaller that, hey, there's a solar flare coming. Everybody in the safe room.
0: Everybody in the tank. Right. That's what I was thinking. I was wondering if they could, you know, if science fiction tells me that you could have some sort of safe room at the center of the ship that's maybe more shielded than the outer stuff, as long as the equipment could take it.
1: Yeah. So they're so they're kind of looking at this, and now they're going to look at, you know, long term what the rate what the radiation readings are on the surface in itself. So all these kind of things are giving them a, vi- a better idea of okay, well, what kind of shielding would we need to protect the astronauts on the way there? What kind of shielding would we need on the surface of Mars? So getting all these things together and it's one of those times where they're kind of interested in seeing one of those, um, mass ejections actually hit Mars sometime during this time. Mm. So they can see what happens on the surface. I mean, when it hits the earth, that's, you know, we see all those really gorgeous Aurora. And that is all these particles being driven and directed by our, you know, magnetic poles. And they have, you know, we're protected by the Van Allen belts and such, but Mars has more, it doesn't have a large protective shell like that. It has very small, lo- localized sections of magnetic, um, you know, readings that'll protect it from sure. from the surface. Sure. So they're kind of to say, oh, okay, "Okay, how much gets through? How much gets to the surface? And what would we need to guard against?"
0: Well. And then once they get all those pieces put together, then they can start selling uh, cruise liners to Mars trips, and then I'll sign up for one of those, and I assume it's all safe. That's what I'm waiting for. Okay. All right. Now, I got a little bad news for you. Uh, The time machine's in the shop because it is Monday. However, I got the old one, so the door is just a a little loose. Just kind of turn the handle when you get in as you close it, okay?
1: Okay. Right, here we go. Okay. Oh, sorry. No seatbelts either. No, wait. I sold what are those. You doing? Oh, oh, here we go. It's a little bumpy. Sorry, Heather. <laughs> oh, 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 What are you doing? Oh,
0: all right. There we go. See, that wasn't so, so bad. Uh, I'm not Dude, sure. I really
1: had my arm extended out like oh, yeah.
0: Sorry about that. Ripped. One arm's going to be about 135 uh, years older than the other arm. I couldn't help it, Heather. But that does take us to our destination this week. 135 years ago, June 6, 1878. What happened? This Week in Science, Heather.
1: Liquid air was actually obtained at a temperature of minus 192 degrees C. So this professor, James Dewar, at, in the <laughs> Royal Institute in London, and I really know how to say his name.
0: He's a real Dewar.
1: Do, like, because there are... So what he's able to do is, kind <laughs> of sidetracking myself, is he was do a small-scale production of liquid air. He's able to cool it to such a degree that he actually could liquidize it. And he actually, you know, showed an audience and it remained there for a couple of times. He, you know, had it in a vacuum jacket. So what now is they have, you know, gas tanks that you may have seen here or there on television or in my lab. And then there are these giant silver cylinders Mm. trying to hold my arms out to see about how big it would be. Like, I'm not that big, but I could definitely use it as an escape pod. (laughs) <laughs> and have like a little room to move and stretch. And so these are vac- have vacuum sealed walls. And inside you can have really, really cold, like cryogenic temperature, liquid nitrogen, or all these kind of things. And so I was like, oh my gosh, that's where they came from. It was James Dewar. That's where they got their name.
0: Wow, that's very cool. And now think of all the fun things we get to do with uh, cryogenics and liquid air. Thanks, Mr. Dewar. I guess that was Dewar with a D E W A R. So D yes. Maybe it might have been D You never know. All yeah. right, Heather. Well, I'm going to uh, recalibrate the side by 2000 so we can look up into the sky this week.
1: Yes. On Friday, June the 7th, about 45 minutes after sunset, you're going to see Mercury and Venus to the west to northwest, about five degrees or three finger widths uh, apart from each other. That's three fingers. Feet. Three winger fifths.
0: Winger with fifth fifths.
1: Yeah, say that three times fast. Do that one time slow, <laughs> held at arm's length. So, and then you'll see those two. And then to the left, upper left of them, by a little, quite a little bit, you'll see two brighter stars. They're Castor and Pollux, about the same distance apart from each other. And those are the two heads of the constellation Gemini, the two twins. And on Saturday, June the 8th, Just after dark, if you look to the southeast, you're going to see an orange-red star over there that, unfortunately, isn't Mars. It is the red supergiant star, Antares. In general, this week, we're going to see Saturn in the south during the evenings. And Mercury, Venus, and Jupiter are still putting on a show. And the afterglow of sunset, you're going to be able to see them making kind of a straight line pointing towards the west-northwest horizon. Mercury is going to be the highest one up. Venus is the brightest one in the middle, and Jupiter is getting closer to the horizon, getting progressively and progressively harder to see as the week goes on, but Mm. they're still uh, putting on a nice show over there in the west-northwest.
0: Very good, and don't forget, if uh, you remember you see something in the sky, but you can't quite remember what it was, Heather said she even has a visual guide in the show notes. Just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Look for SciBite96 and scroll down towards the bottom of those show notes. And she has all of this listed out as well as the visual guide. Heather, I think that brings us to the end of this show, doesn't it? I think so. Well, that was a fun ride. We got through it all. I didn't think it'd be possible on a Monday evening, but uh, we managed to do it. Wow, look at us. Well, there you go, everyone. Now, Tuesdays are normally... The nights were live, but you can always check jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get the latest schedule. Whenever there's adjustments, they're always updated there. Heather, thanks for the great show. Thank you. And thank you everyone for tuning into this week's episode of Sybite. We'll see you right back here next week.